forget to put your bulletin in your hymnal now. Don't roll your eyes at me, dear. <laughs> well, I know you will. All right. <laughs> uh, well, I haven't been to the mall lately, but it wouldn't surprise me if signs of uh, Christmas have already begun to appear. And before long, a red-suited man uh, will begin taking requests, promising to deliver wishes if children are good. Now, we know what all of this means, and while we may not appreciate the commercialization of Christmas, few of us are overly offended by it. But how do you think Paul would react? if he came to Springfield or any other city in America at Christmas, if he traveled through towns and saw houses decorated with images of Santa and snowmen and reindeer and elves, now he would probably feel the same way he did when he arrived in Athens nearly 2,000 years ago and beheld a city full of idols. We're studying in Acts chapter 17, ready for verses 16 through 21. Now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, uh, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming, for you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and uh, strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. Now, it's doubtful that Paul had originally planned to go to Athens. Uh, he probably planned to follow the Ignatian way across Macedonia and then sail to Rome. But the brethren in Thessalonica, you remember, had sent him to Berea, which is off the main highway, and the Bereans took him to Athens to escape the Jews who were wanting to, to do away with him. Well, when he got there, he apparently decided that that might be a good place to evangelize. So he sent word back to Silas and Timothy to join him there as soon as possible. After all, this was Athens, and it was a famous city with a glorious past. It was the birthplace of democracy and the center of culture and education for the civilized world. Even Rome acknowledged the importance of Athens and gave it self-rule. Now, by the time of Paul's visit, it was actually a shadow of its former self. The population had dwindled to around 10,000, less than Chatham, and was made up mostly of philosophers and teachers who, who reveled in Athens' past 
and merchants who profited from it. But it might present some unique opportunities for evangelism, so Paul decided to stay. Besides, he could not remain silent after walking through the streets of the city. Luke says that his spirit was provoked by all the idols he saw in the city, and there were lots of them. It was said that there were more statues of gods in Athens than in the rest of Greece, and that it was easier to meet a god than a man in the city. And that was literally true. Historians tell us that there were over 30,000 idols in the city, and as we mentioned, only 10,000 people. Well, Paul was provoked. He was stirred up by what he saw. He knew these were not just works of art. He didn't view them as would tourists today. These were gods to the people. They were idols, altars at, at which people worshipped. And Paul felt compelled to confront them with the folly of idol worship. So he not only reasoned with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue, he took his teaching to the marketplace, to the Agora, and he talked to any who would listen. Now, the Agora was the center of social and cultural life in Athens. Mornings were spent in buying and selling, as you'd expect, in a marketplace. But this was Athens. So the afternoons were dedicated to philosophy. And uh, philosophers who had been approved by the Areopagus, the ruling council of the city, would teach from stone platforms throughout the city. Most likely, Paul began doing the same thing. Before long, he caught the attention of both the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers who, who represented the two major philosophies, approaches to life, that were held in Athens. The Epicureans believed Everything happened by chance, and death was the end of all things. They believed there were gods, but the gods were remote and uninvolved in the lives of mortals. They believed the chief aim of life was to find what joy one could find, to avoid pain, and to get out from under the fears and anxieties of death. On a popular level, it had degenerated into a life of unbridled pleasure-seeking. The Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheists. They believed everything was God, and everything that happened was the will of God. So nothing really mattered. The best thing one could do was to live in harmony with whatever was happening. And this, of course, led to complete apathy. Well, Paul began conversing with both groups, but apparently they weren't too impressed with this outsider. Some viewed him as an idle babbler. The word they used actually means seed picker. It came to refer to someone who was a, a scrap collector, who, who picked up scraps of secondhand philosophies and peddled them as his own. Well, others were curious about his teaching because they thought he was the proclaimer of strange deities. He spoke of Jesus and the resurrection, and they thought Jesus and resurrection were a god and goddess. 
and wanted to know all about them. So they took him to the Areopagus, the council that met in the royal portico located at the northwest corner of the Agora on a hill known as the Hill of Ares or Mars Hill. In times past, this had been the chief court of Athens, and it dealt with everything from the licensing of teachers to cases of homicide. By now, it only had jurisdiction in matters of religion and education, but it could still censure or approve philosophers and teachers in Athens. So Paul's freedom to speak in Athens may have been in their hands. And they wanted to know more about this new teaching, these strange things that Paul was bringing to their ears. For as Luke points out, they spent their time doing nothing other than telling or hearing something new, exploring the latest philosophies. They were curious. So Paul was given the opportunity to address them, and he took advantage of that opportunity to reveal to them the one they worshipped in ignorance. Verses 22 through 29. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all life and breath and all things. And he made from everyone or made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they should seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are his offspring. Being then the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Now Paul's approach to the philosophers in Athens and in the Areopagus had to be different than his approach to the Jews in the synagogue. You know, it would be futile to refer to a history no one knew, to argue from prophecy they had never heard, or quote from a book they'd never read or accepted as authoritative. He had to begin where they were. So he established common ground by acknowledging that they were very religious people. And that was obvious. There were idols and altars everywhere. He then said, when I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. He used that as an opening. 
and proceeded to introduce them to the God they worshipped in ignorance, the God they admitted they didn't know. What a brilliant move on his part. This God, he pointed out, is actually the creator of everything and is therefore above all things higher than any of their gods, gods they believe to be over one aspect of nature, you know, the, the God of the sun or moon or, or the sea, the God they didn't know, the God of everything, the Lord of heaven and earth was the one he was introducing them to. And obviously... The God of everything is not limited to anything, so he doesn't dwell in temples made by hands, nor does he need to be served by human hands. The God Paul was telling them about is the provider of all things and therefore was in need of nothing. He didn't need the food or the gifts they placed on altars throughout the city to appease the gods. He was the source of life and breath and all things needed for our existence and needed nothing from us. For his existence, he's the God of all things. He's not a local God, the God of only one people. He's the God of all nations. In fact, he made all nations from one family, the first family that he created. And that, by the way, was in direct opposition to the Athenian belief that they were superior to all others because they sprang from the soil of Athens. He then told them the God they worshipped in ignorance is actually the God who controls their destiny and the destiny of all nations, appointing their times and establishing their boundaries. The Athenians, like Americans, tended to think they were in control of what went on in their democratic processes. But as Daniel told Belteshazzar, the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. God can use even men of low character to accomplish his purposes in a nation. And that is very good to know today. God rules all nations. But he doesn't limit his involvement in our lives to, to being a, a distant ruler. He's directly involved with each one of us personally. And even their own poets acknowledge that mankind lives and moves and exists in him. And that we are his offspring. That's why we long to know him. We are his offspring. That's why they wanted to know this unknown God that they sensed and even worshipped. But their attempt to reduce him to an idol made of silver and gold or stone was ludicrous. God is far above anything we can imagine. And any attempt to create an image of God in our mind or by our hands that we can control or manipulate is very offensive to him. Therefore, Paul declared it was time to repent. Verses 30 through 34. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he has appointed. 
having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we shall hear of you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also was Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others God could overlook some misunderstanding about him and his nature when men were merely groping to find him. But, Paul declared, the times of ignorance have come to an end because God has spoken. Man is now without excuse. We no longer have to grope for an unknown God. That's critical today, 2,000 years after Paul confronted them with that fact. Because people today want to be so spiritual. Their lives are filled with all kinds of things that make them feel warm and fuzzy and religious. They're groping after a God that they don't know. And they're doing so in ignorance. Because God has revealed himself. He has spoken. The times of ignorance are over. Man is now without excuse. The time has come to repent, to change, to get lives in line with the revealed will of God. And it had better be done now. Because God has fixed a day, Paul says, when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who rose from the dead. That man was the Jesus Paul had been proclaiming in the marketplace. Now, whether Paul went on to explain the plan of salvation and his present or his presentation was, was just cut short by their reaction, we really don't know. Apparently, he did give some details because some responded. And no doubt he said more than Luke records. But it doesn't look like he got to finish his presentation to the Eropagus. When Paul spoke about the resurrection, the philosophers reacted. Some began to sneer, to belittle what Paul was saying. Now, the Stoics could have accepted his talking about what they interpreted to be the immortality of the soul, but even they couldn't swallow this talk about a bodily resurrection. After all, at the founding of the Oropagus, Apollo was quoted as saying, Once a man dies and the earth drinks up his blood, there is no resurrection. So they began to sneer. Others being a little more polite simply said, eh, we'll, we'll hear about this later. No, they just put him off. They put off, in effect, making a decision about Jesus, assuming they would have the opportunity to do so later. But it does not appear that they were ever given a second chance. And that is the real danger of putting off a decision. Sometimes we think, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll handle that tomorrow. We come under conviction about what God wants in our life, and we say, okay, I'll think more about that next week. That's so dangerous. That's so dangerous. We don't know that we'll have another opportunity. When the moment of decision comes, we ought to respond. Not like the Oropagus did. 
Well, some did believe. Some believed and came to know the Lord, and among them was Dionysus, an Areopagite, a, a member of the council that had interviewed Paul, and a woman named Damaris, and a few others. That's, that's all we know of his ministry in, in Athens. Now, how much longer Paul stayed and whether he was able to continue teaching in public after his interview with the Areopagus, we, we don't know. The gospel had been proclaimed, and some had believed it. Paul took advantage of the opportunity afforded him and made a difference, at least in the lives of some. And obviously we can learn from Paul's example here. You know, today there are a lot of people who worship God in ignorance, especially around Christmas. They fill their lives with religious symbols of the season, but they don't understand the real significance of it. They may not be idols per se, but they're substitutes for the real things. Let's make sure those with whom we come into contact know that God has spoken. He has even taken on flesh and dwelt among us. And the Jesus child in the nativity sets will one day be their judge. Now, some may sneer because they don't agree. Others may tend to put us off. Let us do everything we can to make sure they know that the day of ignorance has passed. God has already come to earth once, and he's coming back again. Obviously now. It's the time to repent. Do you have room for Jesus in your life? It's a question we need to be asking ourselves as well as others in our culture and society. If not, could it be because our life is filled with all kinds of idols? And we can make just about anything into an idol if it pushes Jesus out. Do we have idols? We may not build little statues, but are there things that, that separate us from total commitment to the Lordship of Christ? Are there things that are more important to us than gathering in worship on the Lord's Day and meeting around His table? Have we even made family into an idol that we set before our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we, we might read this text and say, that's neat history, but it has nothing to do with me. I'm afraid it does. Because it's easy for idols to creep in and clutter up our lives. Paul called the Athenians out on it. May his spirit call us Have you any room for Jesus? I trust you do.